0: Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 54. Interpersonal Meditation. Awakening as Relational Beings. In this episode, we speak with Gregory Kramer, teacher of an interpersonal meditation practice called Insight Dialogue. We discuss what it means to be on the path of awakening when we realize that we are essentially relational beings. This is part one of a two part series. Do you love this show? Support Falling Fruit and advertise your product or service here. For more details, visit fallingfruit.tv slash sponsorship. So, this is Vince Horn. And I'm joined today by my sidekick, Ryan Olke. Hello. He's also the co-host, but today he gets to be my sidekick. I like being your sidekick. I know. <laughs> and we're also joined today by a special guest, uh, Greg Kramer. And he's the author of a recent book called Insight Dialogue, The Interpersonal Path to Freedom. And it was published, I believe, by Shambhala. And he's also a longtime meditation teacher, uh, has been teaching for some 27 odd years. So he's definitely been around the Dhamma for a long time, and we're really glad to have him here today, and we wanted to talk to him today about uh, the teachings that he's been giving over the past 10 or so years, which he's calling loosely Insight Dialogue. Uh, So welcome, Greg. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah.
0: So I thought maybe a good place to start, since most people probably aren't aware of the Insight Dialogue work that you're doing, is to kind of give a background of... Uh, your experience both as a practitioner and a teacher, and especially with regards to how you, how you started this whole insight dialogue project and what need maybe there was that, that it wasn't, that it was started to fulfill for you. That makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the basic path was fairly straightforward, at least in the sense that like many people, I, I had some sense that, There was (laughs) more to life than I was uh, seeing or experiencing, and, Mm. uh, you know, you might call it the spiritual search in general. Mm. And I don't know that there was anything particularly remarkable about how that unfolded for me, but when I met my first teacher, Anagarika Dalma in Canada, it went from being, uh, you know, piles of books by my bedside and the occasional shot at meditation to... Recognizing a person who was more there, you know, just more there, really solid in who she was. Uh, she was a renunciate that uh, really kind of took her path seriously and lived her life and in a way that inclined towards wisdom, towards goodness. And she also put up with none of my nonsense, uh, which really let me know she was for real. She didn't need me per se, but she was very kind and generous to me in sharing and in sharing of people who she brought in to be her teacher, which was the other three primary teachers that I studied with. And there it gets, you know, it kind of is a little unusual that I had access to these teachers because they were largely unknown in this country and they were all monks. In one case, one had been and then later became again a monk. So there was Ajahn Sobin, who was a Thai monk, Mm. and Venerable Ananda Maitreya, Tara, a very elderly, esteemed Sri Lankan monk, and then Venerable Punaji Mahatera. So, having access to those teachers, I suppose, was a little unusual, but like everybody, you know, sometimes life hurts, and, you know, uh, also there's some sense of the possible, I guess, brilliance of the human experience, and I was following that, you know. Mm. And from study of Dhamma and meditation retreats and all of my practice at home and all this kind of thing, if there was any, I guess, defining characteristic for me, and that continues to this day, it's a profound dedication to making it as real as possible in my life. And sometimes with the Dhamma, that seems difficult to to do. You know, it seems difficult to take these profound, penetrating teachings and say in the midst of working hard and thinking too much or in the midst of taking care of a family or whatever, what is this really? What is this awakening? What is mindfulness even? You know, What is concentration in this very life? What is tranquility? Uh, and of course, what is morality? Am I really living the heart of it? So um, it's that sense of of isness you know of suchness of it that actually that became the guiding element as the interpersonal relational aspect of the dhamma developed
0: hmm. so would you would you say that from the beginning then this interpersonal dimension of the dhamma has been something that's been central to your practice and and to your investigation
1: I'd kind of like to say, I wish. (laughs) No, it wasn't. In fact, I I really did the traditional thing, hook, line, and sinker with no regrets. It's just that like many, I accepted uh, without reflection the assumption that it was sort of me on this path, a very um, individualized, personal sense of I'm meditating, all of the kind of, Pitfalls we fall into. I'm improving myself, or I'm going to get some goal. Mm. I did all of. I did all of that. You mm. know. Needless to say, that there's a lot of dead ends in that kind of attitude. Mm. At the same time, you know. Truth be told, there's there's a lot of uh, beauty and diligence in it as well. Mm. You know, even if it, even if there's some misguided sense of me and my path, and I'm you know I'm in there you know kind of slugging away at this conditioned sense of myself and all of that. Still, you know, I put a lot of energy into each moment and I really did my best. I I studied the Abhidhamma, and I went to long retreats and I let my knees get really sore. And (laughs) I did all that, you know, I did all that stuff, you know, and in a sense, it was like the, even if it was driven unskillfully, almost despite me, some kind of wisdom was beginning to brew. But what happened was, When I began to explore the interpersonal, something that was ready to ripen and hadn't quite blossomed in that wisdom found its its expression, Mm. uh, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, I mean, it began simply enough. I was actually in a Ph.D. program and was working with a colleague in that Ph.D. program. Her name was uh, Terry O'Fallon we were exploring Bohmian dialogue, David Bohm's dialogue practice. Hmm. And the kind of the radical thing back in 1995 was that we were exploring it online because there had been no dialogue of that depth that we're aware of and you know taken online. And so that was, a, we had a real sense of being pioneers in that. But where it really came alive um, was uh, when we began to, infuse those times of dialogue with our meditation, meditative intentions, meditative qualities of mind. Um, Terry had begun to study with me, uh, study Vipassana with me. And so s- spontaneously both of us brought those qualities into the dialogue and pretty soon we were sort of letting go, you might say, moving, moving away from a lot of the language and intentions of Bohmian dialogue and towards this dialogue as meditation practice. And that eventually became the topic of our PhD dissertation. As I understand, I don't know if this is true, but I was told it's the only fully collaborative, fully joint PhD dissertation ever offered by an accredited institution. I don't know if it's that sh- that's true. If so, I think it's kind of amusing at, you know, at, at least. But well-deserved. I mean, we worked very hard, and the the quality of collaboration was built on meditating together, not built on just thinking together, which we did a lot of, too. Mm. But anyway, our practice was almost entirely online. I mean, we were exploring mostly online um, what came to be insight dialogue.
0: So when you say online, do you mean more kind of emails, texts, back and forth?
1: A lot of text. Yeah, yeah a lot cause... of text. Chat texts and bulletin board text. And, you know, we explored different forms of the practice. And then we developed an online meditation-based research methodology mm-hmm. called Insight Dialogic Inquiry. Hmm. And all of that was tremendously fertile. And uh, I'm very grateful for that that, uh, partnership with Terry. And we had done only a couple of face-to-face sessions, uh, some with other members of our PhD group, but also uh, a couple of retreats that I pulled together. But it wasn't just that the practice was green. It was that as a teacher, I was very respectful of people's time on retreat. Mm -hmm. And so we would tap into the dialogic practice, and then I'd back away just into the silence, you know, so, mm. that, could I, so that I could be sure that <laughs> people would, you know, for their rare time off that they got, that they would really go home with something that they needed from their retreat experience. Right. I didn't yet, I didn't yet have the confidence, you know, that Insight Dialogue could offer that. Mm. But a couple years later, uh, when I started just teaching retreat practice and uh, and weekly groups and this kind of thing, I began to see that there's something here that was Far more potent than I had ever imagined, and um, over the next you know eight, ten years, uh, it evolved in surprising and powerful ways.
0: So uh, what do you mean when you, you found that it was potent what like what specific things were you finding? Was it in, in the students like or in yourself?
1: Um, yeah I, uh, I wouldn't really say it as one or the other so much as I would say that I definitely saw in the people who attended retreats, and, and this increases as time goes, as, as the practice becomes more clear, and my teaching becomes more clear, I suppose. Maybe as people become more receptive, I see people come to retreat, and huge loads of conditioning drop away. Even if people have been, let's say, meditating traditionally for years. It's, it's quite stunning. And there's a, a number of reasons I could say that I believe that's the case. But let me just for the moment just say that I see that. I see that all the time. Mm. And then also say, to answer your question, that for myself as well, uh, I was immediately challenged in all kinds of ways that I had not been challenged before in terms of my own self-construct and what the Dhamma was and what it was to uh, teach or what it is to even be in relationship or what it means to uh, really ask what is the path of awakening when we realize that we are essentially relational beings. In other words, we're sensory creatures, right? Mm. You know, you, we all know that in meditation, you see the nature of physical pain and suffering and the, all the psychological suffering from your own thoughts and all this. But when you really look at the relational nature of being, mm. what is revealed about the nature of the path? It's, you know, it's a, it's a deep and serious question. So I couldn't escape that. You know what I'm saying? I, I, uh, I couldn't hide in, in any knowledge, like knowledge of of the Dhamma, knowledge of meditation technique. There was nowhere to hide. And for many of the people who came to retreat, they were courageous enough to join in that um, challenge, that opportunity with me. And, and that comes down to what is, what is the Dhamma when you understand that it's relational as well as personal? Mm. Yeah, that's kind of a key question, isn't
0: it? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. One I've actually been finding in my own personal experience lately to be really important. And, and especially when I consider like other contemplative traditions, like for instance, Christianity, where there's such a personal relationship to you know, divinity. Mm-hmm. And I've been wondering what's going on both in terms of divinity and then with people. Like what's this, this we relationship mm-hmm. with regards to you know, awakening, like you're saying, or divinity or spirit or
1: you know, uh,
0: truth or whatever?
1: <laughs> and, and how it manifests in you as a human being, right? Mm. In other words, uh, if you talk about the Christian tradition, Uh, It's also about compassion and service Mm. and gratitude, right? Right. Mm. And uh, if you look at the Buddhist tradition, of course, certainly the later Buddhist tradition, the bodhisattva vow is a relational vow. vow. I vow to serve and to save all beings. That's relational. But even if you stay with the early Buddhist understanding, you have to eventually face the fact that you were born of a mother and father, your upbringing was completely in the furnace of relationship. And what that means is that your brain, all your synaptic connections were created in relational as well as sensorial encounters. So when you even... About what am I doing in this life, or you think about what's important to me inherently, and there's no choice about this, the way that you consider that, the way you conceive of yourself is relational. Mm-hmm. It is it is based upon your encounters with others. And so you know, so we come to things like the four noble truths, you know, uh, suffering. Do you think suffering doesn't include interpersonal suffering, relational suffering? But of course it does, right? I mean, the the answer would be absurd. The Buddhist taught the truth of suffering, but he didn't mean suffering with other people. it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Absurd. So if you say that the suffering is also interpersonal suffering, which I take to be patently self-evident, that means that the hunger, the craving, the second noble truth, obviously has to include craving in relationship to people, doesn't it? Mm. No, really. Don't don't let me lead you, does it?
0: I mean, that's certainly been my experience.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's what I'm trying to say is this is not like some sort of theoretical thing going on here. There's suffering. The suffering comes out of longings and urges and desires and hungers, right? So we don't just want to have a soft bunny rabbit or a nice pillow. We want other people. We don't just want a good cu- cup of coffee. We want company, or we want to be recognized and seen, right, mm. or, we, or, we, or we want protection, we want, you know? Mm. So we, we say, wait a minute, these hungers are manifesting in my interpersonal lives exactly as they manifest in my sensory life, mm. Right? Mm. So that's the second noble truth. And what are those hungers? You know, same basic hungers, the hunger for pleasure. The, the Buddha defined three of them, right? The right. For pleasure, pleasure. Well, do you have any interpersonal hungers? Do you have any hungers for the pleasure of relationship?
0: <laughs>
1: How could you possibly say no? Right. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, you know, we can be in sort of a radio interview mode, but it's actually a very human thing I'm addressing. Right. You know? mm. Your, your hungers, my hungers, the fact of this human, uh, these urges that we all carry, mm. you know, uh, I hunger for the pleasure of whether it's, you know, my girlfriend or my wife or whether, whether it's my boyfriend or my lover or whatever, my partner, I hunger for the pleasure of my friends. I hunger for the pleasure of, uh, going to a football game or going to a knitting bee, you know, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's seeking the pleasure of other humans.
0: Yeah. Lately here, it's been the hunger for uh, Halo three on the Xbox.
1: <laughs> well, that would be, th- there is a relational piece of that. of oh, course. It's definitely, oh. it's online. Yeah. It's online yeah. In, yeah. in
0: relationship to uh, our coworkers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, good. But also, of course, then we see that that's all tied up with interpersonal hungers too, right? but yeah. also with sensory hungers.
0: Right. You know? mm-hmm.
1: So we want the pleasure of seeing the graphics, or we want the pleasure of the, uh, the conquest, or we want the, you know, you can look at it a million ways. I mean, um, but we also have, I mean, the Buddha talked about these three hungers. The pleasure was only the first one. Right. Then there's the hunger for being, the hunger for becoming, right? The Baba Tanha. Right. And this is the hunger to exist, to survive, and to survive interpersonally. Right, the hunger—the hunger to be in the eyes of others. Right, the hunger to be seen, to be recognized. The hunger to have our this self that's doing the hungering fed and supported and nourished. Right, no matter what the delusion is, might be behind that. You know, you can take a, um, a kind of a an elevated stance. Oh well, of course, no, I I, I don't hunger for. Any kind of recognition, you know, something like that. But this is not something that you can just look at with the rational mind. You have to go into meditation, preferably interpersonal meditation, where the mind becomes sufficiently sensitive, alert, in the moment of interpersonal contact. And then what do you see? Do you see anything in you that says, I I want this person to hear me? I want to be seen. Do I fear not being seen? Is the other side of that, right? Mm. Do I fear being invisible? You know, I mean, look at look at all the things we do to be seen, whether it's have radio shows or teach meditation for you and I, right? Or the, you know, the high school football star or, or the or woman with a beautiful body who shows it in a certain way with her clothing you know, or the movie star or the accomplished um, artist who gives the art for altruistic reasons and to be seen, right? Mm. Or the person who delivers a a cake to someone who's not well, really cares. It's offered with love and generosity, right? But at the same time, if the person doesn't acknowledge and see it, the little bit of hurt there shows you that there's still some, oh. I want to be seen for my generosity. It's a, it's a subtle thing. I, you know, we don't want to call it a bad thing. We just want to look at the human condition, you know, the fact of these hungers. Mm. And then the hunger for non-being is the, is the third hunger, the hunger for not being seen, mm-hmm. the hunger for invisibility, the urge, the craving to be safe, the reciprocal fear, is the fear of being is that, is that also
0: a fear or a desire not to be in a relationship?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, but to recoil, to pull away, uh, whether it's in introversion or social anxiety, or simply hiding behind something. We can hide in meditation. We can hide in drugs and alcohol. We can hide in overwork. We can hide behind a persona that's very upfront, and hey, look at me, isn't this great? And then all that's not wanting to be seen, right, is the vibha that's on the hunger for not being seen, the hunger for invisibility. Don't look there, don't go there. So there's an urge for escape, to get out. So we see that this interpersonal understanding of the Dhamma is actually revealed in one's interpersonal meditation practice, but it also provides a compelling motivation to engage in interpersonal practice, to see where the hungers are controlling us, and to meet them with loving kindness, with awareness, and so become free.